Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. What is up, everybody? Welcome to Travis and Vic's Drunken Horror Adventures. I am flying solo. If you couldn't figure it out by now, I'm Travis. Here in just a few moments, Kevin M. Sullivan will be joining us to uh, talk about the trail of Ted Bundy. If you don't know what that is and you don't know who Kevin M. Sullivan is, I highly suggest anyone who is a first-timer to this show, go back and listen to our show with Kevin from last year. But without further ado, Kevin is on the line. What's going on, buddy? Hey, hey, guys. Well, hey guys. you know. How y'all doing? Doing very, very well. You know, I have to tell you, uh, on my own, I listen to uh, our podcast from last year all the time. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I really liked your stories on, on Bundy the first time around, and you were sure. kind of uh, in the midst of, of working on the trail of Ted Bundy at that time. So um, I've, I've kind of listened to your press round so far. I, I've kind of tracked your uh, YouTube videos where you were going mm-hmm. from place to place to place. But, you sure. know, we'll start at the, the obvious beginning. Um, mm-hmm. As draining as that first book was on you, what was it that made mm-hmm. you want to revisit the subject of Ted Bundy? Well, after I finished the first book, I often say this when I'm on a podcast or, or you know, radio show, it was a two and a half year, really marathon, and it was a day and night kind of thing. And you know, delving into the Bundy world, it's a dark world. And you get to know the killer well, you get to know the the the, the victims well, and uh, there's just a lot there. And um, you know. When you, when I'm when I was writing the book, I, I was you know, it's like a wind to my back. I'm carried through it. I was very aware of how really terrible you know these crimes you know were, and uh, it takes a little bit of an emotional toll on you to do it. But I but I was wanting to do it. And about halfway through, you know through the book, I knew I had something special on my hands. I was finding out a lot of new information, and uh, but once the book was finished. Um, in, in July of 2008, um, you know, I, I I could not I, I couldn't have written it again. Uh, it was it would have been too much, and I never wanted to write about Bundy again. I, however, I could talk about the book. I could talk about the writing of the book. I could do radio shows and podcasts. I could, you know, uh, I, I can knock out an article. I I chair a Bundy blog, and I can do all of that because that's different than immersing myself day and night into that world. And that's what you have to do to write an in-depth biography of anybody, a killer, a non-killer, or whatever. It really is going, you know, you, you get to know that person in those situations very well. So being a dark world because of all those murders and how he was, um, that's not anything I wanted to revisit. Now, after the book was published, um, you know, people occasionally will contact me that either I wasn't looking for or, um, you know, there have been some people that I looked for and I I couldn't locate. But 
but, but they'll contact me, people that I never even thought about looking for. And every time I hear from someone, I always welcome it. You know, we talk either on the phone or by email. And, um, you know, it's, it's good to hear from them. I listen to all their stories. And it's, it's, it's important for them a lot of times to make the call or co- make the contact, even if it's just, just by email. And I'm aware of that. And so I always welcome that. And, and I've learned some things from people. So after I wrote the, after I wrote the first you know, Bundy book, I, I didn't know other people would bring some information to me and that I would ever be writing another book about him. But I, occasionally I would get something from somebody and I would incorporate it into an article or something like that. And there was one particular person that contacted me. Her name was Lorraine Fargo. And Lorraine, I, I, this, is a, this is a lady that I, I, I didn't uh, talk to the first time. Uh, I wouldn't have known where to find her. She is the last person to speak to a, uh, she spoke to Kathy Parks on May 6, 1974, when just moments before Kathy Parks was abducted by Ted Bundy or led away by Ruse from Oregon State U, um, you know, that, that evening. And she, she contacted me. And the reason why she did is because her son had been, you know, Googling his mom's name and Ted Bundy. And, and it may, may have been through Goodreads that uh, he was able to read a portion of my book and he was able to find a reference I made to her in my book. And with that, she contacted me. She was able to, she uh, posted uh, a comment at Amazon uh, on one of the book reviews, as I recall. And um, she was looking for me, okay? And I contacted her back, and we got together. Very, very, very nice lady. And uh, she was, she, she had, in, she confirmed a couple of things that I suspected was true about that night pertaining to Kathy Parks, but I couldn't quite prove it. And I say these things that I suspect were true in, in my book, The Bunny Murders. Well, Lorraine confirmed that. And the reason why I'm talking about Lorraine now, she enters into why I did this other book. But I wouldn't really count her as entering into it for a while because it, it was great seeing her. I mean, t- t- talking with her, all the information, it, it it, it was a process of healing for her to get in touch with me. And I actually talked to her about coming on that blog that I share where she could answer questions, and she did. And the whole process helped her. Now, having said that, um, you know, obviously she still had some pain in her over this. And um, so what happened was after about a year and a half, uh, she passed away. And... Um, you know, I, I I I knew she had some problems. I knew she was having some medical issues, but I didn't know that they were that serious. And it turns and it turns out that um, after she passed away, um, you know, I, I thought, you know, that's a terrible thing. And I thought then, think of all the voices of people that are leaving us. But that wasn't enough, even that, to get me to attempt another book. But in the spring of 2015. I was having a conversation with somebody who was officially close to the case because, you know, um, you know, Lorraine wasn't officially, you, you know, connected. But um, 
because she was just a friend of a victim. But I, I spoke to this person, and they're having med- some significant medical issues. And um, I, I hated to hear that. And when I hung up the phone from speaking with that person, it wasn't long after that. I thought, you know what? There are people out there who have never to- told their story. And I was thinking back to all the information I found out from people while I did the first book. And I thought, if I'm ever going to do anything else with this particular case, uh, I need to do it now because people are passing away. I mean, they're not going to be around forever. And so I started again. And just like the first book, you know, I didn't know what I was going to find. But I found a lot of new, new information uh, that came out about the case and uh, from his friends new information from friends of the victims, and uh, it just started taking on kind of a life of its own. And I call the new book, which is The Trail of Ted Bundy, uh, Digging Up the Untold Stories, I I, I call that, uh, you know, a companion volume, because that's really, really what it is. It's a standalone book. Anybody that reads The Trail of Ted Bundy, they'll feel like they've gotten a good treatment of Ted Bundy the killer, and, and they'll come away knowing his victims and stuff like that. That's all good. But for anybody that's read the Bundy murders, they'll quickly see that that's a good addition to it. Because in both cases, whether it's the Bundy murders or the trail of, of Ted Bundy, I have gotten a lot of new information brought to the surface. It hadn't been published before. And it's in the new book. So that's how that came about. And, and believe me, if a week before somebody would have told me, before I talked to that person who's having those, those problems, back in spring of 2015, if they had said a week before, you're going to write another book on Bundy, I would have said, no, I'm not. I'm not going to do it. But when that, when it hit me, how ill this person was, I thought, no, now is the time to do it. So that, it's really, I, I kind of just kind of wandered into it, you might say. It was never my intent to write a second book about Ted Bundy. You know what I, I was thinking about before we came on the air? I was thinking about um, the fact that the, the case has, you know, gotten so old now, especially to the generation now, that, you know, people don't know. I mean, if they know who Ted Bundy was, it's almost a legend to them, you know, because they didn't live through it and things like that. Um, yeah. Is there a part of you when you're writing the second book that, you know, not to say that you're taking credit for anything, but um, no. that uh, is is just, I guess... Uh, you know, kind of satisfied with the fact that you're able to keep it in the public's mind as a real event and, uh, you know, tragedies as opposed to, you know, something that people can kind of treat as fiction. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like there's a realism to it that I think people forgot. Well, yeah. Yes, I I can tell you why I do what I do. In my heart, I am a historian. And now I mostly write true crime. I've written a couple of books on George Armstrong Custer. I have a great love for history. And um, it's important to me, but because I'm a true crime writer, it's important for me to pull cases out that were long gone and forgotten and get the case files and sometimes interview people and bring things to light and get them in print because that's a way of preserving them. Nothing makes me happier than doing that. Now, for the Bundy case, there's plenty out there. I kind of got to go back to why I had no intention about writing about Ted Bundy 
ever. But in 2005, I met Jerry Thompson, who was the lead investigator of the Bundy case in Utah, and he's the guy that kind of brought Bundy out of the shadows, okay, and announced him as the killer that he is. And then everybody knew it, and Washington State knew it. Everybody knew it after that because he, he, he came to light in Utah. I had a interesting experience because a friend of mine had been good friends with Jerry Thompson for many years. And he asked me back in 2005, he said, Jerry and his wife, they're coming to Louisville. And would you like to have dinner? I said, sure. So when they did, uh, Thompson brought Ted Bundy's murder kit with him to Louisville. He's had it in his possession all of these years. And, you know, I, I, it's posted. The, you'll find the, the, the color photograph I took of this stuff all over the Internet. Uh, it, there's only two photographs three photographs out there of the Bundy bag and two of them were taken by me. And one is the official black. There was a, there's an official black and white picture from 1975 of his stuff in, in, in the Utah authorities hands. And that's been uh, published in my book. It was published in Keppel's book and it's on the internet, but there's a couple color photographs uh, floating around that I have released so that they'll be out there for people. Again, that's the historian in me. And uh, those were taken on my dining room table. I was able to bring Ted Bundy's murder kit because when Jerry came to Louisville, he turned it over. He, he and his wife were here for a couple of days just doing some sightseeing. And they wanted to see Jim and I was able to meet them and I was able to interview Jerry. He turned the bag over to my friend who is now deceased. His name was uh, James Massey. And Jim let me bring the bag to my house. and. Meeting Jerry, this is the thing, meeting Jerry was exceedingly interesting. And I wrote a, an article for a paper called Snitch. It was a weekly print newspaper that was published here in Louisville and Lexington, Kentucky. And at one time, five other states, four or five other states. And I think by 2005, it was running in about three states uh, still. So I, I published an article about meeting Jerry and, and about this, this, this murder kit that he brought to Louisville. But before Jerry left, he gave me one of the green glad trash bags from Ted's car that he used to, Bundy would have these glad trash bags because when he would murder a girl, he would put all her clothes in the bag and dump it somewhere else. And the only thing he'd leave on the girl if he left anything perhaps would be a necklace, beaded necklace, something like that. So he gave me one of these. Well, I find it was so surreal, first of all, having that murder kit come into my possession, bringing it home, putting it on the dining room table, pulling that stuff out. It was surreal. I even tried on the mask. <laughs> it's just I couldn't help myself. I thought, I'm sure besides Bundy, nobody else has tried it on, so the detectives didn't do it. But uh, And it fit. But anyway, I was just kind of being silly. But um, it was weird, and it was surreal. So here's what happened. I wrote the article for Snitch. It was published. It was well-received in the Louisville and Lexington areas. And if they published it anywhere else in the, in the other Snitch newspapers in other states, I'm sure everybody liked it. So that was great. And I thought that would be it. But that wasn't it. There was something in me that wanted to learn more about this case and to write about it. And, of course, I had people tell me, don't. Don't do a book on Bundy. There's a number of books out there, and they're good books, and, and they are. 
that he, Bunny's been done to death. Just don't do it. But you have to sometimes go with what you know on the inside. And so I did. And I started this, and it was very in-depth. And I gathered case files from all the states. I talked to all the lead detectives I needed to talk to from all the states. I went to Utah. I, re- I, I, I uh, interviewed Jerry Thompson for the second time. And so this was all for that first book. And halfway through the book that became The Bundy Murders, I was finding out a lot of new information about the case and new and vital information that's never been published you know, before about three or four of the murders. And it was starting to take on a life of its own. And so that's how I fell into that book. And the book has been doing well you know, since then. It's, it's, a, it's a very popular Bundy book, and I'm happy. It's gratifying that people like it. And so, but again, I never had any intention to write about that. It, listen, meeting Jerry Thompson isn't what caused me to do it. It was having that murder kit in my house and having been given that bag, that large green glad trash bag. I just found that so surreal. I had to know more. So it, it worked out. When you start a book, you never know if it's going to work out the way you want it to or, or the way you think it should. But it did work out, and I was finding out new stuff, so that was great. Now, that's the reason why I wrote about Bundy. I would have never picked Ted Bundy. I, I, I used to, when I was writing true crime, I used to find obscure things or maybe a long ago case maybe to write about. But in any event, I like digging out stuff from the dustbin of history. Things that you, In fact, I've got books out now where I would write these things. I would occasionally write for Snitch. But, you know, they, I wasn't on staff, but I would submit an article. And uh, even when, when, when they went out of business, I was slated to do a, a couple more articles, and the poof, it was gone at, you know, after a number of years. But anyway, I like to pull things out of where people don't know about it. And I've got books in print today, Kentucky Bloodbath, uh, the Kentucky section of Unnatural Causes has other cases in there, or you could get the, the e-book Death of a Cheerleader, and that's got a lot of all those Kentucky cases. And so that, that does a lot for me. I get to pull them out. I get to, I get to tie everything together and put that into print. So I wouldn't, uh, I just frankly, I would have never written about Dead Monday. There's already books out on him. There's already, he's well known. I just didn't have any desire. So that's, that's exactly how I fell into it. And then once I was into it, it really did become a part of my life because, you know, I just, I've been answering on that blog for years. I write articles. Up, and then, and then here comes that second book. So that's how I actually got involved with Dead Bundy. You know, it's interesting you bring up those other cases because last time uh, you were on the show, towards the end of the show, we talked a lot about those Kentucky cases because, you know, I'm in yep. Louisville, Kentucky also. And uh-huh. some of those rang a bell and some of them I had no clue about. And it was really interesting yeah. to hear. So I'm with you about talking about some of those cases that people aren't aware of. In fact, you know, like we talk about Bundy on this show or we talk about Albert Fish, and people people that are yeah. uh, a lot of people are aware of. But I, I do like mm-hmm. talking about the, those smaller cases. So. I'll get back mm-hmm. to that in just a minute. But with the Bundy thing, you talked about last time on the show, not just the Bundy bag and not just the Bundy bag being in your house, although the mask is the first time I've heard that. It's yeah. pretty interesting yeah. that you got to do that part of it. Um, driving <laughs> around with the Bundy bag, i got to assume that there's almost, well, maybe on an opposite end, a correlation between driving around with that Bundy bag and then this this journey that you went on revisiting the you know, the, the places where these crimes took place. Right. The, it, it, I mentioned in the Bundy murder, uh, in the 
in the Bundy murders, I mentioned in the preface that it was so surreal picking up that bag from Jim's house that night. And it was nine 9.30 p.m. It was, uh, it, it, it just turned dark. It was, uh, uh, you know, uh, basically uh, we were almost in to, to, it was, I guess, late May. I can't remember now the, the exact date. But uh, it had just gotten dark and driving past streetlights. And I'm looking down at the bag in the passenger seat. And this is Ted Bundy's murder kit. There's not a museum curator with me. There's not a detective with me. The bag he carried around to murder people is in my car. Can you think of anything more surreal? I didn't know this was coming. That's like somebody knocking on your door and say, oh, by the way, here's the bag that uh, that Jack the Ripper used or or what, some other bizarre thing, you know? And so that is what really did that for me. And then when he gave me that, that glad trash bag, that was just, I mean, that was the, that was it. I just, it, it was just there. I knew I wanted to do it. And that's, and that's what happened for the first book. I traveled to Utah and I took photographs of all the sites and I traveled to some parts of Colorado, but I didn't get the most of it where he operated. And then I, I, I did extensively the Florida portion where he went down to Kyle Omega and killed them. But I never got to Washington State. So I told my wife, I said, you know, for the second book, I got to visit all these places and I need to return to Utah. So we headed out and we visited all the places. And, uh, you know, we went to just everything, everything of significance. And there were some questions I had, too, because I was determined to find out. Since I'm writing a second book, there were some things I was determined to find out. And I said um, on one of the podcasts I was on, uh, uh, recently we talked about, and I know I talk about it in the new book, that if you, um, you know, I had the case file of the abduction of Susan Rancourt from Central, you know, Washington State College. Today it's uh, Central Washington University. And... um, I had the case file on that, but I wasn't able to be in Washington State. And, and when I wrote about the crimes, the murders in Washington State, it was very interesting because I had, I had the case file. I had all the photographs that I needed of that time. I had modern photographs of, 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 of the places, and I had maps, and I had everything that I needed to write it accurately, and that was good. But for this book, I knew I had to be there, and I had to um, walk the site and, um, you know, just see what's, uh, you know, ha- ha- what, what kind of feel it has today, how the places have changed and everything like that. So that's what, what I did. And at Central Washington State College, I had two particular things I needed to know. I needed to know where the bridge was that is spoken of in the record, that Bundy tried to get one of the girls to walk across as, as uh, she was going to the library, but he was going away and she didn't know that and she had to cross this bridge. I didn't know where that was and I couldn't pinpoint. I had a map of where it pinpointed the uh, exact location of where the trestle that he parked near uh, this railroad trestle in this really deserted area of the campus. And today all that's changed. It's, there were two parking lots, one north and south of that railroad trestle, but now they've been gobbled up by uh, you know, the expansion. Now it's just one massive parking lot. The trestle's gone. So it was interesting finding out where those were. And a guy named Dave Woody contacted me 
because uh, uh, I, I, I felt like I kind of had it figured out while I was there. But when I got back from the trip, he actually contacted me. He had heard about some things. Somehow we got together. I can't remember. Yeah, he contacted. He actually contacted me on Facebook. I think having seen some of the videos, and he shared with me a bunch of research that he has done, and he was able to show me exactly where the bridge was. And so, uh, yeah, so it, it, it was great to learn that. And so all of that went into to the new book. And this is just information that you you can't really find out when you if you read that in the Bundy Murders. I have that story in there about how they crossed the bridge. You have no no way of knowing how the layout was and really what was there. And so I go into, uh, you know, some depth about it, of the layout of it. And Bullion Hall, which was at the time Bullion Library, is where the, uh, where, um, the, the, the students would all go. They had to go in the front door. And so uh, Bundy was standing out there dropping books and things like that, and he had some packages. And he was seen by lots of people. And um, so he ended up taking uh, one girl, followed him across that bridge. There was a bridge that ran right over a man-made pond, but that ran between um, the Bullion Library and something called the Group Conference Center. And then to the left of the conference center facing uh, the side of Bullion Hall, I mean, the, uh, the Bullion Library was Black Hall. And so the man-made pond is gone, but it was right there. And Dave Woody was able to um, locate a photograph of that bridge running over the pond, and it runs parallel to the library. So he answered my question completely. It was what I had suspected. I found the area that I thought probably had to be it, but I couldn't confirm it, and then he confirmed it for me. So this is all part of the research of books and things like that, which is really good because once you get that down, it's there for posterity. People, if they go there, they'll know exactly where these sites were. So anyway, it's important to me as a historian to do that. You know, along those same lines, one of the, one of the things that we talked about last time as well was uh, the detectives and how helpful they were and how knowledgeable they were and things like that. And, and one thing that I never did ask you is, did you ever run into people that really just, uh, I mean, aside from like witnesses or, or maybe not even witnesses, but, you know, family members that you weren't trying to talk to, obviously, but like mm-hmm. investigators, detectives, anyone who was kind of standoffish and didn't want to give information willingly? Yeah. Yeah, there was not, not many. There was only one. And um, he is, uh, a, 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 I don't know if I should name him, but... All of the ones mentioned in the book were, uh, well, I guess I can. Uh, uh, Ira Beal from Bountiful, really nice guy. He's the one that worked the uh, Debbie Kent case, and he worked it in conjunction with Jerry Thompson. But but Ira, that was his place. The only thing he ever said to me, he's a really, he, he's a nice guy. But he he said, why do you even want to do this? <laughs> I said because I, I just want to do this. I want to write this book. But he was helpful. that's the only time that any of them ever expressed anything that that you think like, you know, that might be like slightly negative, but I like Beal, but, you know, and I never got to know him as well as I did like Jerry Thompson or Don Patchen out of Florida or Russ Renault out of Idaho or even Bob Keppel out of Washington state. And Bob was very helpful. I talked to him. So most people were completely on board and Beal was on board as well. It's just that he was, kind of wondered why. I think, now you got to understand, 
these guys that work the case, some of these guys just want to forget it. And, you know, Mike, Mike Fisher, I have to add Mike because Mike was a Colorado investigator and he helped me immensely in writing, in, in the writing of the Bundy murders. But some, there are people out there, there are cops out there who were connected to the case that don't want to really talk about it. Most do, some don't. And I think maybe Ira Beal was maybe one of those guys who would just prefer not to. But he answered my questions and he was extremely nice. But you could just tell he didn't, it didn't seem to me that he wanted to be fully on board with it. And he wasn't suspicious of me or my intentions. He just kind of, he's an honest guy. And I like that. And that's why he, you know, he had said to me, he said, well, how come you even want to do this? But outside of that, no, mo- most of the investigators were great. Now that I, I did run in and I can't say who this was, I located the sister of one of the potential victims of Bundy. And she was very hostile to me over the phone. And I said to her, I said, listen, I got the case file and I, uh, I have everything that your sister told the investigators. I, I only wanted to talk to her and ask her just a couple little questions, that's all. And I said, if you could just please pass the information off to her, and she said she would, but she was very rude. And I called back a week later, knowing how rude she was. I said, hey, I don't mean to bother you, but um, did, did you happen to pass the information off to your sister? I'm just checking because sometimes people get busy. And she was, again, as rude and curt. And she said that she did. Well, come back to 2015, I was actually able to locate her sister, but uh, I called and I, I was able to obtain the, this person's phone number and I called and left a message and I said on the phone, I said, I, I tried to contact you in like 2007 and I said, I spoke to your sister and she was, she was rude to me, so I'm not sure if you ever got the message, but um, if you did get the message, you probably don't want to talk to me now. And I chuckled. I said, but if you didn't get the message and you'd like to speak with me, um, and I left her my number. And I was very polite, of course. I always am with people. And she never called back. So I don't know. It's hard for me to understand hostility, especially when somebody didn't fall victim to anything. I mean, she was a potential victim. But why the sister was so hostile to me, I don't know. But that's rare. I don't usually encounter that. But I do encounter occasionally people that don't want to talk. I was going to ask you about that that hostility, not from her specifically, but just from people. You know, like, I always wonder this whenever anybody writes a book about uh, specifically a serial killer because, you know, people take it a uh-huh. certain way. Do, yep. do you get those people that are like, well, then you should give all the profits to the victims, not knowing that it's an educational piece? Yeah, that's... I mean, there are people that think that. It's just ridiculous. I, you know, I mean, this is the way people earn money, just like they, they go out and they drive a cab or, they're, or they play basketball. I, you know, it's, what, people earn money. I mean, I, you know, I, I earn money in, in other avenues as well. So the bottom line is I do this because it is of interest to me, and I want to get this stuff in print, and that's my motivating factor. And here I'll, I can actually – prove that a little bit to, to the audience on what my motivations are with this. Um, two years ago, somebody offered me to, this is a 
fairly well-known writer, to co-author a book about Bundy, possible crimes that he committed, possible murders. I didn't want anything to do do with it. I was in that stage. I just, no, didn't want to go back into that world. Now, had I gone back into that world, I'd have made some money from it. Without question, we would have made some bucks. Without question, we would have maybe a lot of money. However, I didn't want to do it. If my motivation was money, I would have done it. My motivation was not money. When I decided to write the book in 2015, my motivation was completely different. It wasn't about money. I mean, I have to make money. That's a given. But my motivation was not not money. My motivation was gathering this stuff, making a really good book, and bringing this stuff to light again, new information. So when people go down that road, and, and then they threaten you by, by the, I mean, I've talked to writers. They've called me and said, this person threatened They tell me to give away my money. I said, don't listen to any of that stuff. Don't listen to it. It's, it's, it's foolishness. When people go down that road, Listen, they just have they have their own ulterior motives for going down that road. And that they think that's the closest place they can zing somebody by saying, oh, well, you're making like it's blood money or something. It's not. It's educational. And I'll tell you something else, too. I write redemptively. I can't tell you the people that have been murdered because they leave their doors unlocked at night. <laughs> now, yeah, listen, you don't sensationalize either. That, that was another thing no. that I was. I wanted to pound home the point. I mean, last time we talked, I mean, you were talking about all the girls, if one thing had been different, if this scenario had been different, if they had just done this one thing that most of us would do, they would right. be where they are today. Right. I try to write about the story as a warning. I, I, I do. It's the way I am. I mean, I was writing about a case about this guy. He came in and he just butchered his best friend. And his parents one night in the middle of the night, and they slept with their doors open. Can you imagine it? I'm 61 years old. I would never go to bed. I have not ever gone to bed at night, even as a kid, without locking my doors. I just wouldn't do it. So these people, this guy, this 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 psychopath friend of of this kid, okay, that was killed, and his parents, he was able to waltz in that house and. Just go up and murder him. So I said to the uh, district attorney one day, I said, "Don't you find that a little strange that they had their house, their you know house unlocked?" He said, "No." He said, "It's a really nice area. People are used to leaving their homes unlocked." When I hear that, I'm going, "Hello, is anybody home? You don't leave your house unlocked. You lock yourself in. You lock your car when you go out. You do everything you can." to protect yourself. And that is just a given for me. So when I write about true crime, I very subtly bring out things and show them so that the reader will go, you know what, maybe I should lock these doors. Do you remember the girl Polly Class that was kidnapped from from a slumber party? Mm -hmm. He walked in, as I recall, he walked in through an unlocked door. People need to lock their doors. And I'm telling you, I could go on for days with cases like this. So this is the thing people need to realize. So, yeah, you will have those people. Some people are just against anything. Now, I've had people not want to just read about it if they're connected to the murders. And I understand that. 
I get that. So it's one of those deals where when they're like that, I mean, I don't go, I don't go out of my way to normally find fam, uh, the, the, the victim's family members because I don't want to bother them or cause them undue harm. But I wrote an article for Snitch, and of course, you know, you'll remember Snitch, and it was the, about the Valley Drive-In murders, and mm-hmm. the, the family uh, contacted the editor of the newspaper because uh, he called me one day, and he's, when, when I wrote the article, I turned some photographs over from the case file. One of the photographs happened to be the uh, girl that was murdered, and it, she disappeared. I think just a few days after she graduated, or I think maybe it was her junior year, but she had just gotten out for that year. And when the girl went missing, the family had given one of her um, uh, class pictures for that year because that's the latest picture they had, and it, and it was a good one. Well, they obviously did not pick that picture up, or it came it it became a part of evidence. And when it was incorporated into the article for Snitch. There were family members here, and this this was a murder that occurred from, from that time when this was published, I think, in 2003. It had been, yeah, 30 years. It was in 73. Uh, they were very upset about that. So the editor called me, okay, and he said, what's up with this? Where did you get that photograph? I said, I got the photograph from the, uh, at the time, you know, now here in Louisville, we're all metro, but at the time it was Jefferson County Police Department, Louisville Police Department. I said, I got it from the Jefferson County Police Department. He said, are you sure about that? I said, yes, I am. I said, why? He said, because the family is very upset because that's a personal photograph. And I said, well, it became part of the case file, obviously. And that which is in in the case file is all okay to publish. So I said, if they have a gripe, they will need to go to the Jefferson County PD. I said, we have nothing to do with that. So... You know, they were upset and nobody called me to express any displeasure, but they called them at, 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 at Snitch at the newspaper. So, you know, you will have that occasionally, but I, I'm so careful about crossing my uh, T's and dotting my I's with things and being up front with people. I've never really had any problem with anything that I publish. And most people don't make remarks to me. I've had I may have had one person that said something like that to me one time. What are you going to do with the money? And I just want to, I feel like saying, well, the same thing that you're going to do with yours. It just doesn't make any sense. It's just stupid. It's silly. I agree. Um, Hey, um, to get into back into the locations again, because I'm fascinated by that. I mean, I, I I wish I had the time. I wish I had, you know, the, the uh, ability to kind of travel to different locations of such things, but Getting to do that, and I don't know if you're a superstitious person. I'm pretty sure you're a religious person. I've, you know, we've, yes. we've had that conversation as well. Do sure. you get any kind of vibes from these places? Is there any kind of a feeling to them, or are they just locations? Does the evil live on, I guess, is the, you know, the cliche there. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah, okay. Now, I, I am an ordained minister, and... um I don't talk about this stuff in true crime books. I don't. They really don't have a place in them at all. But just like um, just like I believe that you and me and everybody who dies, we have an eternal spirit and we're going to go somewhere. But if a surgeon opens you up, they're not going to see that spirit. It's living. It's in you, but it's in a different realm. 
I believe there's other spirits that are on this earth as well that the Bible speaks of that ha- I hope we don't lose so- some of our audience here, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, both the demonic realm and the angelic realm. And it is my opinion that um, not everything's called by caused by demons or anything like that, but there is a, there are a lot of people, and uh, and believe me, Buddy was was one of these who had more than his share of spirits. And yes, some of these places still do carry a sense of that with them. Not all do. Some do, and I'll and I'll give you a perfect example. The first time I was at, and it's, it doesn't it, it doesn't happen all the time. I've been to a lot of sites, just nothing, but some of them do. And one place where it does is um, when we were looking for his uh, rooming house in Salt Lake City, Utah, at 565 First Avenue. We were traveling down the street. I'm looking. I can't see all the addresses. And we're rolling slowly so I can try to see what I can see. As we roll past a house that I cannot see, it's being obscured by two trees. I sense this negative stuff, something bad, something negative coming from which would have to be the house behind those trees. We rolled up a little bit farther, cleared the trees, and I saw above the door 565. So I knew we were there. And it does have an essence to it. And, of course, this is the place where um, Bundy kept several of his victims up in that apartment. I'm sure they were in a coma. He whacked them in the head. And, you know, he played with them, had sexual activity with them, and then finally would strangle them there and discard their bodies. So to me, there are some things that are still there in that house. There is a sense of something that's there. I have felt it at some locations. At some locations, I don't. It would be. It wouldn't surprise me at all if there's not stuff still hanging around in areas like that. Because, I, you know, this would be for another show. But they do have uh, spirits. Do have it, and I don't mean departed people. I don't mean ghosts. But demonic spirits do have a tendency to hang out in certain areas where life has been taken, bad things have happened. That can be, but they're not all there. It's not not every area is like this. Some are like this. I just have a good sense because I've done this for so many years, where things are and where they're not. So that's really all I can say about it. But I've been to a number of places where there's nothing. It's just I mean you just and when I'm there, I kind of blow past that stuff. Like I went into the house. I don't care anything about that. I just, I just you know I looked at it. I looked around. I photographed it. But yes, yeah, sometimes I can sense that. I'm glad I asked that question. You know, I, whatever realm we ended up getting into there, I, I'm fine with because you know, I, not everybody has that experience that you had. You know, not everybody got to do what you did in the yeah. journey. And um, mm-hmm. something I wanted to talk about because you know, there's so many cases involving Gandhi, and then so many potential cases. Are there any cases that you know you didn't get to talk about more in your books because? There just wasn't enough information available, or, or the information that was available was pure speculation, and it was just—it was too hard to write about. Oh, uh, that's a good question. <clears throat> the big thing for me in finding cases, um, and I—I I don't really do this anymore because I'm pretty much exclusively just writing books now. 
than mm-hmm. just articles or just stories or writing a book of separate cases. I'm not doing that now. But when I was digging cases out of the dustbin, or out of the pulling them out of the archives and stuff, w- when you get the case file, you really have it made if it's a fairly substantial case file for writing a good story. And and sometimes you don't even need the to talk to any investigators or track them down in, in some of these things because if it's just a story, 15, 20 pages, and the case files there, you can and, and the testimony of the detectives are there, you can just pull it together from that. And there might be some articles in the paper. But the interesting thing about that is if this is something that most people don't know. When you're talking about archival research, there's a couple cardinal rules if you want to find a, a case. You got to have the name of the people involved, and you got to have a date. And sometimes having the name is not enough. You've got to have the date because a lot of these murders are uh, in the certain files, and they're filed by year. And if you don't know the year, and that's another thing that fellow I mentioned that introduced me to to. Uh, Jerry Thompson, because when uh, back in 2005, uh, James Massey, when 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 Jim um, was, uh, we were talking one day when I was trying to find some cases. I me- mentioned about the uh, driving murders that I had heard about, and I I thought it was 73, but I, I thought that maybe it's 74. He confirmed that it was 73 because he said I, I remember the case well, and. Then he gave me the name of the killers, and that was that really helped immensely. And when I went to the Jefferson County, uh, you know, police department, what you have to do, you have to put in a request, and then they have to go search up the file. And they had a tough time finding that file. And um, sometimes they, sometimes these things get really, really, really put away soundly. And there's one. Uh, place I dealt with that they have their archives and then they have an additional archive somewhere else for even older cases and sometimes they get transferred there but thank God they save all this stuff uh, I mean a lot of them do uh, not not all states do Utah doesn't I mean Jerry Thompson to this day he has this case of the Bundy case okay his case files but a researcher going there in the coming years they're not going to find anything the trial transcript of the of, of the Carol DeRoche trial was destroyed after seven years or nine years or whatever it was. I said to the clerk out there, I said, you mean you don't keep transcripts even from an infamous case like this? They said, no, no, we don't. So the researchers won't find a whole lot there, but thank God I had Jerry Thompson. You will find a lot in Washington State. They're great about their archives. They've, they've gathered everything. And the Florida archives, you will. So when, when, when an archive is, is doing its job, it's really great because they pull stuff out. So it's, it's finding the case. And once you get the case, if, if you get the case file, to answer your question, that's going to make it substantial enough to either, one, write an excellent story to be an article or stories to be published in a book. But um, some, it might be better to say, have I ever thought about writing a book and discovered I didn't have enough material for the book? Yes, that has happened.
And uh, it depends on how much you can get. Now, there was an interesting murder case here in Kentucky that I couldn't get the case file on. And I had enough information that it was exceedingly interesting. And I could write somewhat about it, but I would absolutely have to have the case file to be able to write a substantial article, and I could never get it. So the key is, if you're going to be pulling stuff out, uh, you know, and and obtain it from an archive, chances are, if they find the case file, it will be, uh, you can definitely create an excellent article out of it. Uh, And in some cases, if it's big enough, and if there's a lot to it, you can create a book. It was so interesting because when my wife and I traveled to Sandy, not San Diego, but um, Sacramento, um, and I was writing about Richard Chase, um, which I got a book called uh, Vampire, uh, the Richard Chase Murders. The the Sacramento County DA's office, they have in their archives, not at their office, 14 boxes of files. And we got to spend an entire day there going through what we needed, what we didn't. And then later they copied everything that I needed. You know, I paid for it and then they shipped it back to Louisville. And uh, they even had stuff there from the Richard Chase murders. They had stuff of his. They had, I got to examine uh, bullets that had gone into some of Chase's victims. Some were still in- intertwined with human hair. Uh, it's really just kind of, it's just gross. But, you know, there it is. I'm looking at it. It's part of the case file. And uh, so, you know, they have a tendency to keep everything. So when you're able to get the case file, you are well on your way to writing something that will be accurate and perhaps even substantial. Um, As a historian, how how discouraging is it when you run into one of those jurisdictions or one of those states where they're, they're, you know, getting rid of evidence seven years later or whatever the case may be? I mean, I got to assume that that's, I mean, staggering to somebody who wants to preserve history the way you do. Well, I'll tell you something. Sometimes opposition comes from some of the most unlikely places. Um, I was considering, this is when you're writing a book or you're looking for your next book to write, you kind of put out feelers, you're kind of looking, you're not sure what you're going to do. If you're lucky enough to go from one book to another and you know what you're going to do, that's great. But it doesn't always happen that way. At least it doesn't happen for me that way. I was going to write a book on the, do uh, you remember the guy that um, walked into a McDonald's and opened up like, and killed like 23 people in San Ysidro, California, um, back in, I think, I think it was the 1980s. Um, I, I was going to write something about him, and I, I already had information from books and stuff like that. So I, con- I contacted the San Diego PD who would have the case file. And I got this really rude letter from a captain who's over that. And uh, he said that he was going to, uh, he's, he's not going to release it. Under California law, they don't have to release it. Now, I, I, I never could quite figure that out because there's other case files that you can get that, that, that are homicide case files. But they chose to not release it. They, they quoted some California statute so that they wouldn't have to release it. And so when I talked to, to, to one of these people on the phone, and uh, they, you know, they were just kind of rude, and 
They said, well, we're going to protect the privacy of uh, all these people that were killed. I said, everybody's name has already been printed years ago, printed in all these other publications, in, in the Time Life uh, uh, books about crime. There's even pictures of these victims, and they're named. So I don't know what you're protecting, but they, didn't, you know, they just didn't have an answer for me. So when they finally responded with this official letter after my phone call, um, you know, it, it surprised me. It's like they're they're speaking to me as if I'm the criminal and I'm trying to do something wrong. So, you know, I couldn't get the case file, so I, I just ditched that idea. I mean, I, I could have tried to piece it together from other things, but there were some other factors too. And so when you're trying to gather steam to do something, it doesn't always work out. So you got to go for, you know, if you're fortunate, you get a lot of people that are on your side that will open up to you. And that's mostly the case that I've had. People always open up to me. When I was doing the Bundy uh, book, um, I had so many people to contact in so many states. Um, I think some of these people, when I would tell them and I would put out feelers to them that I had contacted like so-and-so already, I think they went and contacted them. And I've had you know, people come back to me. And the one thing I do as a researcher writer when I'm dealing with people, when they give me information and they're opening themselves up, and they don't have to, believe me, but when they open themselves up, I respect what they say. If I make a promise to them, I will absolutely keep it. I mean, to this day, I've got the personal emails of all of these men. And, you know, all these people. I've had people saying, can you give me their email address? Can you do this? Can no, but I can contact them and pass it off to them. But no, I can't give you anything. <clears throat> so I have guarded. So I've gained a reputation of doing what I say I will do. That goes a long way when you're dealing with people. And if you, gain, if you have a good reputation with how you're going to treat people that are opening up to you, that's great. What's interesting about this book and sometimes it's just a passage of time, but on this new book about Bundy, The Trail of Dead Bundy, um, there was a guy that was offered a substantial amount of money. He was a good friend of Bundy's in Utah. And one of these national you know, magazines offered him a good deal of money to tell his story about his association with Bundy. And he refused to do it. This was like the day after Bundy was put to death. Down the road 25 years, I come along, and he's more than willing to talk to me. For free. So sometimes it's the passage of time. You know, somebody, see, he was true. He was true to himself. He wasn't going to sell a story for a lot of money. He didn't want, he didn't want anything to do with it. These people were still recoiling from what they had experienced with, you know, Ted Bundy. And so money wasn't the issue with this guy. And then 25 years later, I get hold of him. We have a rapport going between us. And he, he tells me the whole story, and you'll find it in the new book. So it's very interesting. You know, you talked about why you got into the Bundy subject, and you got you talked about why you got into Custer previously, and the Kentucky cases mm -hmm. are kind of self-explanatory. But, you know, uh -huh. as far as some of your other cases or even your future cases, what is it that attracts you to a case? Like you and I talked about Ronald Dominique being a possibility um, – uh, yep. When we spoke last year, but your, I think it was your publisher was like, "Eh, we don't want to go down that road." And you were kind of, you kind of regretted yep. that you guys had to go that route. 
Um, yeah. But what is it that, you know, kind of draws your interest? Because, you know, a lot of people who are doing true crime, they do the the quote-unquote big names. Oh, we'll do Gacy, we'll do Bundy, we'll do all this. And when you look right. at it, your huge name is Bundy, and then there's Chase and, you know, some uh-huh. names that people that are really into the subject might know. But as a whole, I mean, you're doing these cases that people don't know. So is that what draws yeah. you in? Well, yeah. If you take uh, from a no, uh, a notoriety aspect, writing Bundy for me was a great career decision because it put me on the map in true crime. And everybody that knows me usually knows me from that book. But you very rarely do you get put on the map, as it were, when you're pulling cases out of the people that the local people will know about or at least remember a little bit, but they're not going to get you national attention. So, but, but that, I can't tell you the place I have in me of satisfaction from having pulled these cases out that are now in print, just like this, this, you know, Valley driving murder case, you know, where, <laughs> just having that in print and it, people can read about this and understand what happened. And, you know, a lot of this stuff was never written about before. You know, I, you know, but I mean, there, there, there's cases out there, like really the go back to the drive-in murders, those guys, uh, you know, uh, pleaded guilty. There was no trial. And so, so the papers, there was only small little articles in the papers, but when they got the case file, boom, there it was. So it, it, it really brings a great deal of satisfaction for me to pull those things out and get them in print. But that won't usually put a person on the map. If somebody pulls something out, and I think I said once you go, anybody, writer from any state, can find these kind of cases from their state and write about them. And if they're fortunate enough to get a publisher, have it published. And it'll be of great interest to that region. And if it's spectacular, it may go beyond the region. But when you write about a guy like Bundy, and I never intended to write about Bundy, all of a sudden, it brought me national attention, and and really international, because I mean the book sells you know well in England too, and and even Australia. But and you know uh, so I mean, uh, but again, pulling these cases out is as much satisfaction to me as it is in the Bundy stuff. Even though the Bundy thing has brought me more, you know, to the surface and brought me out in into light as it were as a writer of true crime. But all of this stuff for me, I mean, you, you got to look at it. If I'm that way and I love uh, uncovering new stuff and getting it in print, can you imagine how I felt when I was finding out all this new stuff about Ted Bundy? Stuff that I never expected to find out about. I didn't know there was new information coming. The only thing I knew for a certainty is I could write a, an in-depth book about the guy and make it interesting, and it could perhaps become part of the Bundy canon, as it were, but not not that it would stand out. And a lot of people think it, it does stand out over uh, some of the books out there because of the new information and because of the way I write it. I didn't know any of that. And I listen, all the Bundy books are interesting. For me, I consider it one of the Bundy books that are out there. There's there's a number of them out there. They're just it's just it's added to the history of Bundy, and that's good. But but. Pulling the new stuff out did a lot for me. And I knew, like I, I often say, halfway through the book, I knew I had something special on my hands with, uh, with the Bundy Murders. And it was just very gratifying. 
I mean, I, I, I'm really a humble guy. I don't like to talk about stuff a whole lot, except when I get on the show and people ask me, I keep emphasizing how surprised I was to find out this new information. you got to think about it. We're talking Ted Bundy. We're talking a case that almost every household is aware of, of who Ted Bundy is. Never in a million years did I dream I would be able to uncover new information. I don't know if I told you this the last time I, I was on, but I even had information about the Let, uh, the uh, Lynette Culver murder mm-hmm. that that Bill Haymar didn't have, and he sat in on every every uh, confession that Bundy ever made. And I, you know, I told him something one day about how she was killed, and is this right? And, and he, he, you know, he didn't think that the, that 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 was correct. I said, Bill. I called him up. I said, the only information I have about Lynette Culver um, is that you know she was. I have her name, and that Bundy drowned her in the bathtub at the Holiday Inn. And uh, he's, and I told him that I got that information from Mike Fisher out of Colorado. He said, well, and he and Mike like each other. And I, he said, I have a lot, of, you, you know, respect for him. He said, but I, I've not heard that. That's the first I've heard of it. So, you know, I, I told Bill, I said, well, look, well, let me try to find out what's going on here, and, I, and I'll get back with you. And so I called Mike up. He said, you need to call Russ, uh, Russ Renault out of Idaho and find out about it. Now, keep in mind, Bill Hagmar was the expert. I was the novice. I was the researcher. I hadn't written the book yet. You know, it had been published. I'm just gathering and writing, gathering and writing. The book's not finished. And so I called Russ, and he said, yeah, that is true. He did, he, he did drown her in the bathtub, and here's why Bill Hagmeyer didn't know it. What happened was they were covering two cases of Idaho. The Idaho hitchhiker the Bundy picked up and murdered on the way to Utah when, when he was going to Utah for, you know, uh, to attend law school, and, and then the, the kidnapping of Lynette Culver. Uh, those are the two cases. So he, Russ said we only had one hour. And we, it was quick-paced, back and forth. We'd talk about Culver, we'd talk about the hitchhiker, back and forth, back and forth. At some point in the uh, confession, Bundy, who was being very agreeable, and he, 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 he was talking straight with them, they, they asked how Lynette was killed, and he said she was drowned, okay? But he didn't say how. But he did say she was thrown in, the, in uh, a river like five miles north of Pocatello, which might be the Snake River. Well, the investigators are sitting there, uh, you know, and Hagmeyer's there too, and and so is uh, Diana Weiner, you know, Bundy's attorney, and and so they're hearing all this, but it's not, you know, it's it's just out. Information is coming out. The investigators, Russ Renew and Randy Everett from Idaho, they thought, well, you know, I, I guess they assumed that she drowned in the river. But as they're walking out of prison, at some point right after that, Russ said, you know, Bundy really never did say uh, how she was drowned. So maybe you can go back. He said, said, Randy, go back into the prison. See if they'll let you see Bundy. And so Randy went back in, and they let him back into a room. And, you know, he sat there for 15, 20 minutes. They brought Bundy in. And he said, he asked it. He said, you said she was drowned, but... How did you do that? He said, oh, I drowned her in the bathtub at the Holiday Inn. 
And then he also told Randy he had sex with her after she was dead, which is what Bundy is. He's a necrophile. And for Bundy, he was a serial sex killer. He could kill prior to their, their, their death. I mean, he could have sex with them prior to their death. He would almost always have sex with them as they were dying. And then because he's a necrophile, he would have sex with them afterwards. So I don't think he told Randy that he had sex with her prior to her death, but he did say, I had sex with her after she was dead, and that's what he wanted to do. Okay, so I confirmed this, and I sent Bill an email. So if you look at, and not only did I have information that Bill didn't have, it was no fault of Bill's. That, that meeting with Randy Everett and Bundy was out of the bounds of, of a, a normal meeting, and really shouldn't have taken place because Bundy's attorney wasn't there and Hagmeyer wasn't there. But Bundy was, 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 was agreeable to talk and, and he did so. So I had to carry back that information to Bill and I sent him an email about it confirming it. And I said, I've got the case file of Lynette, but I talked to Rand, I talked to Russ about it and I talked to Randy about it. And I thought that, in fact, the day I sent the email, I, I told him, I said, Bill, I talked to Randy just today and he confirmed it. So here I'm bringing him, the novice researcher, information that even Bill Hagmar did not have. Through no fault of Bill's, he didn't have it because it was an unscheduled, like unscripted meeting, and it wasn't supposed to take place. And not only that, but I brought out many new facts concerning the uh, two days that Bundy had spent in Pocatello and the hunt. So it was this sort of thing, bringing it out, that was so fantastic. And, of course, uh, it was recognized by McFarland immediately. And they all offered me a – I mean, within three weeks of uh, sending them information on the book, um, they, they, they offered me a contract. And, and you know, I, it, it was great. It, it was great. And to think you could sell a book uh, within three weeks, even without the help, help of an agent. And, in fact, I had sent out like six query letters with, with, with some information. And um, after McFarland purchased it, uh, another publisher I sent out, they called me from the publishing house, and they said they were interested in it, okay, which means a contract was coming. And I said, I'm very sorry, but I've already sold it. So it was good. And, I, you know, like I keep saying that halfway through, through the book business with all this new stuff, I knew that was going to help sell the book because it sets it apart because of the new information. And like, you know, that, that was just a good thing. So anyway, so it, so it, it all worked out well, but the bottom line is I love discovering new things and getting them in print. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, it becomes the one-stop shop and you become something that you weren't. And at the time, as you know, you were the novice, you were learning. And now, I mean, you're the expert, like you said before, if Bundy mm -hmm. came back, you could, you know, tell his story from beginning to end. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and being in that position, I mean, you become one of those guys now. I mean, you talk about these different people that are involved with the case, that when they right. pass away, they're, you know what I mean, and, and that's one aspect of the case that you'll never have again, that people won't have to talk to. I mean, right. are, are there people coming forward to you uh, a lot of the time asking you questions about the case because of, you know, your expert status now? I don't know yeah, if you I, even feel comfortable with that, but you get where I'm going. No, I mean, well, here's the thing. Here's the way I deal with that. Anybody that writes a biography of anybody, 
you, you just there's no way of not becoming an expert on that person or that subject. If somebody writes about a particular battle and, and, and they write an entire book on it, you're going to become an expert on that. So I'm used to people calling me that. I get it. Uh, I refer to other people as being expert in, in, in their field. You know, so that, that happens, and that's fine. But, yes, I've had a lot of people contact me. I've had documentary people contact me. I've had a lot of people contact me about the Bundy case. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it just it kind of comes with the territory. And that goes back to that the Bundy murders really put me on the map for this. And, uh, you know, it's still out there selling every day. And uh, um, so, yeah, pe- people do. And, uh, you know, uh, c- you know, Catherine Ramsland, she wrote a uh, – she's a well-known, you know, writer and, uh, you know, also a, you know, a professor at DeSales and she's a criminologist and she's just really a, just a, you know, really well-informed person and uh, about crime and psychopaths and all that stuff. And she teaches that, and she's, she's written a couple nice things about my book and people that, that uh, have read the book appreciate the book. And once in a while I'll run into people that don't like the book, but it's rare. And, uh, most anybody that's anybody in the crime world, whether they teach it. In, in fact, I don't know if this happened the last time I told you, but and I, I had nothing to do with this, um, but I got a check from my publisher, uh, about, you know, like a, like a year and a half ago, or maybe two years ago, and uh, come to find out that uh, uh, McGraw Hill, that does the textbooks for like these abnormal psychology classes, they're used all around the country. Uh, for the t- November 2012 edition, uh, there's portions of my book in there, and uh, which was really cool to see. I mean, they paid us a little bit of money, which was nice, but the fact that these these people who write these textbooks, these doctors and stuff, uh, read my book, you know, The Bundy Murders, took portions out of it and published it in their abnormal psychology, uh, you know, textbook it just was interesting so it's received a lot of accolades like that it's uh, like i say it's the book that put me on the map and you know writers have a tendency when they get anywhere in the writing business to have a breakout book that finally does it for them my breakout book was the uh, first bundy book so it was good educate people a little bit on on the influence that bundy's had on, on you know culture now i mean you know like with an ed gein people know uh the influences like a leather face and like a buffalo bill but you know uh, there are subtle influences with with some of those characters some of those i don't know uh, popular fictional characters as well can you talk a little bit about you know the outreach bundy has had because you talked about how he was the uh, american jack the ripper in a lot of ways because yeah. he's going to be legendary and he probably right. already is really but you know talk about that a little bit yeah, well, the thing about Bundy is that there is something. Uh, there are certain factors that um, if he won't be remembered because he killed anywhere anywhere from thirty six, let us say, women and and above. And I think it might have gone to fifty. No, no nobody knows. Thirty six or above. I, I do believe it goes higher. It's not that he'll be remembered for that, because there's a lot of people out there that have committed murder that that will be remembered for the the the, the tally of victims. What makes Bundy different 
uh, or the crimes he committed, the boldness of those crimes, how uh, different his life could have been. College graduate, majored in psychology, can you imagine that? Was a law student, very articulate, was rubbing shoulders with um, the political elites in Washington State. Handsome guy. You know, he had everything going for him. As a part of him that wanted to pursue the law, pursue politics, but there was one thing that kept pulling him back, and that was this desire to kill that, that he loved and he wanted to commit murder. And that's the way he went. So when you look at Bundy, you're not looking at somebody that's uh, tattooed, never had a, uh, you know, doesn't have a good education. Uh, if you see the certain people walking down the street, you want to cross to the other side. Bundy wasn't like that. He was the typical American and becoming a successful, you know, American. I mean, just a successful man. People, once Bundy's life started to rise and he graduated from college and started law school, he was gaining in politics. They would, there were people that would think, you know, here's a guy that's going to make a mark in life. They were right. That I've said this in the Bundy Burners. They were right, but they didn't know that it was going to be in the way that he did. So when you take a person like that, that is has a life like that on the outside, and then you find out how truly diabolical he was. You know, a necrophile cutting the heads off of women. At one time, he had as many as four heads in his Washington uh, state, in his uh, Seattle rooming house. As many as four heads, okay? And they weren't just to put makeup on. They were to be used for oral sex and things like that. He was a necrophile. So when you think about that kind of diabolical activity that's inside this man, and yet what he was on the outside, that's the kind of thing that just rattles people. people. It rattles their brains. They can't figure it out. It doesn't compute. And that creates interest to find out the whys, but they'll never find those out. Will never as much as I have found out, as much as others have found out, the Bundy case still has a sense of mystery attached to it, and there's no way of getting around it. There's a sense of mystery, not just how many he killed, but why he did it. You know, why he was successful for so long. Why did he get away with it for so long? You know, when I was writing the book, I thought, now if I was an abductor. I wouldn't go to Lake Sammamish where there's 40,000 people, try to lead a woman away. I I mean, someone could see me that knows me. But he did it, and he did two in one day. I wouldn't do that. If I was an abductor, I wouldn't go into a high school play in Bountiful, Utah, expose myself to 1,500 people so I could abduct one of them. I wouldn't do that. But he did. The strangest abduction that's ever been carried out, in my view, that's ever been carried out in the history of murder and ever will be, is the abduction and murder of uh, Linda Ann Healy. And I've been to that house. 
I mean, I've been to these locations. Um, had a rooming house in the Seattle area, you know, right near the University of Washington. She had a basement apartment. <clears throat> there were two rooms down there, and I say rooms. I, I'm using that loosely because there was separating them from the other co-ed, just a small, thin partition of plywood. And she goes to bed one night, and uh, in the middle of the night, Ted Bundy comes. He had followed them from Dante's Tavern. Nobody knew this. She had been to Dante's Tavern a few blocks away from her house with a couple of her girlfriends and Pete Neal, some guy that is that is mentioned in the record. <clears throat> they come back to the house. Pete Neal leaves. The other girls go to bed, whatever. And then she goes to bed. Bundy comes in through an unlocked door. And just check this out. Goes down the steps. Picks one room. I don't know if he knew if he if he had Linda E. Healy on, on his mind. We don't know that. He may have known her, but chances are he just picked a room. He goes in there and he chokes her. To a, he, she becomes unconscious, but she develops a nosebleed, and she bleeds down out of her nose and runs to the back of her neck, onto her nightgown and onto the bed. He. He, she, she's unconscious. He takes the nightgown off of her, hangs it up in the closet. He takes like a book bag and puts some clothes in it. He, he must have sat her on the chair or later on the floor. He then made her bed. He made the bed. There's somebody sleeping on the other side of a partition of plywood. If I was an abductor, I wouldn't go in there and abduct a woman. I'd find somebody else. But if I did go in there, I certainly wouldn't take down to make the bed with you. But we're not Hell talking no. about you're, we're not talking about you or me. We're talking about a homicidal psychopath who knew he could get away with stuff, and he did. And so he makes the bed, carries her out into the night in a university district where anybody can be out. Kids, college kids can be roaming. Anybody could have seen him, and he had two choices: go down the steep steps that I climbed up to the house. Carrying a body across your thing, even if she's wrapped in a blanket or something, to the street, or he could have parked right behind her house in the alleyway. But to do so, even with a VW, would have effectively blocked the alleyway because it wasn't that 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 wide. But this is this is this is bold stuff, and yet he got away with it. That's why I say I never expect to hear of a. Um, abduction more strange than that so these are the things that cause people their heads to twirl they don't get it they don't understand it and i i think because of you know how people are uh and when they know about bundy that's what causes that interest and i do think that he's one killer he's one american killer that will be uh studied for you know years to come and it wouldn't surprise me at all if he would not, and I say this in the new book, it wouldn't surprise me at all if he would not take that same kind of status in this country as Jack the Ripper did in that country. And the only difference is we don't know who Jack the Ripper was. We know who Bundy is, but knowing who Bundy is makes it, in my view, even more strange. But there is a sense of mystery, too, about Jack the Ripper because they never figured out who who you know who he was it's just a strange case so now that um you have gotten to the point where assuming 
this is the last Bundy book. I know you want it to be. I know you think yes. it is. I don't want to say, you know, never say never. But assuming yeah. that that chapter of your life is finally finished, at, at yeah. least in writing, um, mm-hmm. so where do you go from here? What, what what topics are you looking towards now? Well, I can't say what I'm working on, but I am working on, on a, a new true crime book. But I haven't, I, you know, that's one thing I don't talk about them. But, uh, you know, but later when I get on into the book, I can tell you what the subject matter is is about, but or who who it's about. But I, but I don't talk about those things early. But it is another, uh, you know, case of a killer. But it's not a serial killer. But I will tell you that that's probably even that, that will start the juices in your brain thinking. It's not a serial killer. What kind of killer is it? I can't say. But <laughs> you just have to wait a while. But yes, I am working on another book. Uh, very good. I'm, I'm happy to hear that. That'll give me another show to do. <laughs> Not that you didn't have other ones. Um, no, that's true. That's good. It's really interesting because I like hearing you talk about the Kentucky cases. I could have picked any one of them any other time uh, yes. to talk about with you. Uh, but look, can we revisit uh, Richard Chase again? I mean, his story, yes. and, and you talked about that, his story yes. was so bizarre. I mean, there's very few like that uh, of people you know, who end up in prison that are like him. I mean, I, I know he yes. wasn't legally insane, but he was a whack job. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, he was uh, – in fact, I point out the differences between him and Bundy. Both of these men were very diabolical uh, as far as w- w- what they liked to do. But Bundy was not – he was not crazy like Chase was in the sense of he, he had a good sense of who he was Chase was real different. Chase was uh, very mentally disturbed. And, uh, you know, like he he was dirty a lot. Uh, you know, he, uh, his clothes would become dirty. He would, you know, have people would meet him. He'd have, like, crustacean around his mouth. But Bundy was very uh, immaculate, well-dressed, looked like a college professor. So both of the men were diabolical. You could say both that were are mentally ill, okay, because nobody's going to do these things to women if they're not mentally disturbed, and that's correct. But one, you look at Bundy, you think, no, no mental illness. You take one look at Chase, you think, ooh, this is a whack job. Now, as to their diabolical activities, um, in both cases, uh, Bundy avoided detection. And Richard Chase avoided detection. So while I look at a guy like Richard Chase and say, he's crazy, I really believe that. He's crazy. But he's not legally crazy. He knows that the authorities and society does not want him to do this. He's doing it because he wants to, but he knows he shouldn't do it. And that's the main definition of whether somebody is legally insane or not. If they know what they're doing is wrong, and if they're avoiding detection, they know that. Chase went out of his way to avoid detection. But even, listen, even the the prosecuting attorneys, even though they proved him to be legally sane, which Richard Chase was, they also knew that Richard Chase really believed that his blood was turning to powder, that someone had stolen his pulmonary artery. You know, he would used to, his, I think it was his aunt, 
that used to talk about how he would take a towel and wrap oranges in it and put it around his head, thinking that would help him, okay, and stand on his head. He was doing all the stuff that you know when you see it. It is nothing but craziness. It's psychotic. And you didn't see any of this, none of this out of Theodore Bundy. But then they both went out and committed these heinous murders. But where Bundy, because he he wasn't messed up in the same way Chase was, he could conduct his life with this mask of sanity. Uh, Bundy went, went on for a long time. Chase was going to get caught because there's no way he could be the kind of organized killer to escape that for for uh, for for very long. What the authorities were concerned about, uh, you know, anybody butchered is too many, and they, they just knew that whoever was doing these killings in Sacramento, uh, they weren't going to stop. So, uh, thank God they caught him fairly quickly, but. Uh, yeah, yeah, he was legally sane, but you, you know, you, if if you met Chase, you'd think the guy's crazy, and you 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 would be right, just not legally insane. You know, I'm going to delve off into a territory that I don't often go with guests, so I'm I'm going to ask you because you, you you've seen the most heinous of acts, but at the mm-hmm. same time, you also have a, a reverence for history. So I'm yes. curious where you come down on the death penalty. I, I mean. Because, you know, when we're talking about the death of yeah. a cheerleader, that was one where, I, yeah. wasn't there a stay on the execution at that point? Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Well, first of all, didn't. I am. Yeah, well, he's, yeah. Well, here, here's the problem with Kentucky. They've reached the point that they don't want to put anybody to death. And it's a sad thing to see because a lot of these men need to be dead. They needed to be dead a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Victor Taylor, Victor Taylor, who, along with somebody else, murdered the uh, Trinity boys here that I write about in, 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 in you know, one of my books. A guy, he, he's grown old on death row. He should have been in the, the, the ground long ago. The guy that killed the cheerleader, uh, Robert Keith Woodall, this guy needs to be dead. He needed to be dead a long time ago. They need to execute that man for what he did. But this state is run by people that don't want to do that. And they remind me of California. I wish we were more like Texas or Florida mm-hmm. because I think the death penalty is an excellent tool of the justice system. When you have somebody that commits these types of murders, I am not talking about putting people to death if they kill somebody in an act of, um, you know, uh, rage because somebody finds somebody sleeping with their wife and they kill somebody or, you know, somebody gets in a fight with somebody and kills them. I'm not talking about that. But this type of murder, uh, abduction and murder, killing police officers, you know, just, yes, the death penalty. See, here's the thing. I have been a minister for years, but my compassion runs towards the victim and runs towards normal people. And the Bible's clear that people can do things where they forfeit their right to a body. They forfeit their right to live in the earth. If you're going to conduct yourself way a certain way and harm people, you need to be removed from the earth. I've always believed that. There's nothing wrong with that. Some of these people, how about this? Do you remember back in 72 or 
73, whatever, when they uh, declared the uh, death penalty unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, some people were given life, but not life without parole. They, they were commuted, they're sentenced to life. They got out again and committed additional murders. Well, let me explain to you, people that are dead cannot commit additional murders. When you kill, Bundy is never going to harm another woman. The world became a better place when they fried him. And every time they execute someone like that, the world becomes that much of a better place. So I am all for the death penalty. And I hope there's so many changes going on in this nation now and not for the better that I hope that that doesn't go by the wayside because I, I, I don't want to see that kind of weakness, you know, you know, come into this country. You said everything that I thought. So you and I are on the same page there. I've always felt like, you know, it, you put somebody in jail for a long time and then they kill other people in jail. And guess what you just yeah. did? You just allowed somebody else to die because you couldn't go through with what needed to be done. You know? Right. Right. And listen, some people believe that, that life is precious no matter whose life it is. I don't believe that. I believe people can forfeit the right to live. And heinous murderers need to be dead. That's all. They don't need to be alive, breathing air, taking up space, taxpayer money, feeding them, housing them, medical care. No. They commit these murders. They're convicted. They need to be put to death. But that's just, you know, so I applaud Texas. I applaud you know, Florida. Yeah, crank them out. If they're guilty and they've got, you know, the, the, also the appeal process is, is ridiculous in this state. Goes on for decades. The appeal process, everybody needs appeals. I get it. They need to quicken the appeals. But there's no heart in, in the state of Kentucky to do this. So that's a bad thing. It, 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 is, it is not good. And people, there are people alive on death row here in Kentucky that should have been dead long ago. What are your thoughts on, uh, and this is the only thing that's ever made me kind of tilt my head and listen to somebody who's anti-death penalty, is when they talk about guys like Bundy need to be studied, and that's the reason they're against the death penalty. Personally, you know, I, I think there's yeah. the need for them to be dead trumps that, but you get my point. Yeah. Well, you know, the, you, you can only go to a certain place with these people. Uh, the, the, I don't think they need to be studied. I think they can be studied for a little while. But I don't think that should stand in the way of justice. And I don't think there's a lot that can be gained from these people, and I'll tell you why. Um, Bundy at the end came clean about a good number of the murders. He didn't want to touch upon necrophilia, and you know he didn't want to admit he enjoyed that. So he did admit something to Bob Keppel that he liked the. the not a cue of a woman's fingernails turning when, after she's dead, but he didn't like to talk about it. So they're not going to get everything they want, but, he, but killers sometimes give up some information. But if you house them and study them, most of these people are very arrogant anyway. Most of them will clam up or they'll lie to you. I mean, there was a standard thing before Bundy's final confessions where he really had to come clean. They used to say about Bundy, how do you know Ted Bundy's lying? Oh, his lips are moving. And that was a standard joke. He came clean about some real stuff at the end. He called Mike Fisher up one day. Mike told me the whole story, and, and it's in the Bundy murders. He called up Mike Fisher. He said, listen, these people are serious. 
they're wanting to kill me. And I, I just want to confess some stuff, and I want to help the families. So Fisher st- told him on the phone, he said, listen, I'm not going to c- come all the way to Florida and listen to some BS from you about speaking about these murders in the third person. You're going to have to come clean. He said, I promise you, Mike, I will. And he did. So at the end, you got a lot of information that the investigator did. But beyond that, you may not, even if you kept him alive, you may not have gotten anything of value from him because these people want to hold on to their secrets. They can't tell you why they are that way. It's a mystery why Bundy was that way. I mean, as a small child, he already had some kind of defect in him that was noticed. Some strangeness about him was noticed noticed by his family members as a small child. But his aunt in Philadelphia noticed it. And I, I told the story in the book that, um, you know, he was, uh, the aunt woke up one, one night and uh, one morning and Bundy had taken kitchen knives, like butcher knives or whatever, and razor covers and put them around her body, around, you know, in the bed, pointing at her around her body. She looked at him and he was dazed looking, you know, he just, well, that speaks of some very significant things that are wrong with the child. And yet he hadn't looked at pornography, but he tried to blame pornography at the end. Pornography is a, is a very poisonous thing. And what it does to people is terrible and what it does to relationships. But it doesn't make people go out and kill women and cut off their heads and have sex with their dead bodies. Bundy tried to blame what he was on pornography. And while pornography has so many detrimental things to it, you wouldn't believe. As a minister, I can tell you, it's so detrimental. But it does not translate into what Bundy became. And when Dr. Dobson, I remember that. I mean, I was a minister then. When Dobson was interviewing him, and I looked at and I thought, wait, wait, whoa. Dobson's actually buying that, that the pornography caused that, because Ted was always into blaming everything else and everyone else, rather than saying there was something in me that just wanted to do it. He did tell Bill Hagmar one day, he said, people have a hard time understanding that I just enjoyed killing people. That's what he told, Hagmar told me that himself. He said, Bundy said to me, I just enjoy killing people. And that's yeah, I've always that agreed was, with that too. I've always known that that was the reason. Yeah, that, that that's really you know. Now he he took sexuality, and he put that violent spin on it. He liked those detective magazines, and I remember the detective magazines: large-breasted women being tied up by a man, being dominated, being chased by a man. And even as a kid, I thought, "What's up with that? Why is there always this theme?" I thought that was very strange. Bundy loved it. And that helped him develop some things. And anytime you add things that are not good or violent with sexuality, then that's going to that's gonna change the person. And he was already having issues with things. So Bundy couldn't even ask. If Bundy was here today, he couldn't really answer why 
he, he became what he became. He can say, I just enjoyed killing people, but that still wouldn't tell us why he enjoyed killing people, would it? No, absolutely not. And hey, along it, it, those lines about Bundy being just a, a blatant liar and being a pathological liar, I've always wanted to ask somebody this, and I'll ask you, the Dobson interview, which, you know, I sat there as even a younger uh, viewer of that and sat there and knew it was BS. What, what was uh-huh. his reason for, for, I mean, what did he benefit from telling him that it was porn that made him do that? Well, Bundy and people like Bundy always want to pass the buck. If mm-hmm. you notice in that interview, he said, we are your sons. We are your husbands. We are, he, he was, he was trying to put himself in with other people as if to say, I just know he's like this, as if to say, see, I mean, there's a bunch of us like this. It's not just me. It was always passing the buck. And when he blamed Pranat, and his friends knew it, and the attorneys, everybody knew that that was bull on Bundy's part. The reason why I think he did it was he just wanted to blame, it's his final shot to blame somebody else. And, of course, Dobson's talking to him, saying, Ted, how could you, how could you do this? You know, how we, as if he's a normal guy. And I thought to myself, if this guy got out again, he'd go butcher another young girl, Dobson. He, he hasn't changed. They're, they're, he hasn't changed. He's still that vicious, cold-blooded killer. And Dobson's talking to him like, you know, he's come to Jesus now and things are okay. I don't believe that for a second. Yeah, absolutely. And then, uh, so we've talked about how new facts of the the Bundy case came out, uh, both books for you, um, at various times. Have there been any other subjects that you've written about, whether it's the you know death of a cheerleader or any of the Kentucky cases, Richard Chase, anything like that, that that have any of the same types of scenarios where new information came out to you, uh, whether during the writing of the book or after. Well, <clears throat> one thing nice, when um, you're digging case files out of the archives, that stuff that's not been well publicized, you will find stuff that you can call new, even though it was in the record. But when I wrote about Heather Teague, which um, she's a girl that disappeared from um, Henderson, Kentucky, along a beach one beautiful Saturday morning in August, and she was abducted from that beach. And it turns out that a guy sitting across the river watched the abduction, and it's like a half mile across the river. He had a telescope in his living room that he used to like to watch the wildlife and stuff like that. And I've been to this guy's house. I've looked through that telescope. It's, I mean, it's a nice. It was nice to be able to view this stuff. And he happens to see this guy abducting this lone girl from this thing. Well, there's never been any trial. There's never been anything. Uh, because when this a guy named Marty Dill, his name came to light uh, that he could be involved in. People called anonymously to point the finger at Dill. Uh, and uh, they had done that with Dill in, in other things that had gone on with women uh, as well. Um, he ended up killing himself uh, before police had a uh, chance to interview him. They had surrounded his property. They had gotten a warrant, and he killed himself. 
Well, when he killed himself, that's basically saying, I did it. Okay, people don't kill themselves for traffic tickets. And he told his wife, he took his, told his wife and child to leave uh, earlier and said, uh, I am uh, facing 20 to life and I'm not going. So apparently, you know, you can read between the lines. Uh, the police were apparently on, on the right track with this thing. Now, um, you know, so uh, I, I was not able to get the case file on that, but I was able to interview a bunch of police officers and detectives, and I was able to get the case file of another attack that they think Dill did in a cemetery against a woman as she was cutting grass, and I got the case file when he was arrested in Indiana, I think about six months before he uh, was involved with the Heather Teague thing and the police came there and he killed himself, uh, where he was arrested in, I think it was Evansville, Indiana, when he was trying to pick up girls at a place called Haney's Corner. And when the when the police officers pulled him over, they said, do you have any weapons? And he said no, and he did have two weapons on him uh, in, in his car. And he was arrested, and they called the detectives. And when the detective got there, and I've spoken to the detective, he said that uh, Dill had um, rope, duct tape, a shovel. He said, the detective said, I looked at all this stuff, and I, I just had a feeling if this guy wasn't arrested today and he's trying to pick up girls, he probably would have killed somebody today because that stuff was for binding people. That was his opinion. And so they arrested him. So uh, all of this was new. I got some new information. In fact, I was able to get information that when I told told a group of police officers, uh, Kentucky State, you know, uh, you know, police uh, uh, officers, as well as the commander uh, of this post, I gave them some information, and they were surprised I was able to find it out. And I said, "Well, I've been doing quite a bit of research and investigation myself." And I think they were quite impressed with that. And I said, uh, but this is true, is it not? They said, yes, it is true. And uh, so they were a little surprised. But so that, 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 was, that was gaining a lot of new information. And that was a case where I had to piece it together uh, from just the uh, testimony of the guy that saw the abduction and the people that I talked to and the police officers I talked to, because they had to speak to me in an unofficial manner. Um, so, uh, because I couldn't see the case file, because that particular case, other feet, is still open. But the case of the attack in the cemetery is closed, and of course the case is closed in Indiana, where he tried to pick up girls, and they were afraid he was going to kill some girls up there. So, in any event, it was interesting. Uh, and I'll tell you something that's really something. I was working on uh, something else at the time, and I heard about her abduction from the beach. And it intrigued me. I thought that's very strange. You got a girl by herself on a beautiful day at a beach along the Ohio River, and she gets abducted by somebody who came out of the woods and got her, and somebody saw it. So I knew I was going to write about that, but I, and I did, but uh, it actually sat in the drawer for years after I wrote about it. And uh, then once, you know, a few years ago when it was published, it, it it came out in book form. So, but anyway, but yeah, there's always, you know, you just kind of, you're going around every corner that you can. And sometimes when you go around a corner, you're met with a lot of new information. 
and that's uh, that's always a good thing. You know, our our area, uh, the state of Kentucky and, and surrounding area. You know, I I wouldn't. I wouldn't think that we were so rich in in true crime history, and I hate to say rich, but you get my point. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And, and you know what? Every single day, there there's something new going on right now. I mean, I was talking to Vic about this. Is that you know um, we we talk to an expert in Chicago all the time, and that you know Chicago makes news when there's not a murder. Uh, yeah. Every day, sure. you know, whenever it's they go crazy. a day without somebody getting killed, but it's starting to yeah. become that way now in Louisville. Yeah. 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 So it feels well, like, I mean, you're going to have all sorts of material to uh, write yeah, about, unfortunately. Yeah. And, you know, the crime in Chicago, I mean, they have a lot of homicides, and I think a lot of them are just drug-related and gang-related, and that, that's a whole different that's, – that's murder because of turf, and that's, uh, that's just a whole different ballgame. And it's a shame because not only are they killing each other, but a lot of innocent people get in between that. And uh, – but yeah, it's it's bad. So uh, yeah, and I think Louisville's homicide rate has increased, and uh, most of it is uh, downtown. I mean, most of it, but and and that's unfortunate. But it just is. And uh, then you, but once in a while, out in in in, in suburbia, you know, there 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 will be a murder. And uh, I, I, that 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 Ohio thing that is really astounding. It, 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 did you guys hear about that family of that was killed in three, like eight of them or six of them in like mm-hmm. three or four different locations all at once. I mean, somebody really wanted that family dead and it's strange. I haven't been busy. I haven't heard anything more about it except that, uh, you know, it's, it's a, uh, it's a very odd case. It's a bizarre one. Uh, you know, I can't, I'm interested to see where that goes, but yeah, absolutely. There's some sort of, an organized nature to it, but it seemed also, you know, strangely yes. er- erratic too. Yeah, it did. Except for when, when I heard that they went to four different locations to kill these people, I thought, wow, somebody really, somebody really wanted to destroy that family. It's very strange. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. I'm sure somebody will write something about it at some point. The killers are yeah, out there. So I, I don't think they've called them yet. So, so we'll see. <laughs> Well, they do say Ohio is for killers, and last time we spoke, I think we had talked about that there. And I don't remember what happened with this, but there were there were people missing in Ohio, and there was a. You said that there's probably a serial killer on the loose, and I think that maybe that yeah. did come to a resolution, didn't it? I don't know. I can't remember. But you know, once in a while, these things will pop up. I mean, uh, you know, the the thing about serial murder, it, it has to go on a little while mm-hmm. for there to be a pattern to recognize. Once in a while, yeah, you'll hear of bodies being found at a certain location, and it's not just an indiscriminate killing. It starts to form a pattern. And sometimes people, like body dumps, they like to go in the same areas, but then they'll have to change. And these killers, you know, that that want to keep doing it, sometimes they have to change what they're doing to get rid of bodies. And, and uh, But when a pattern starts to form, then uh, the public takes interest. I mean, they, they, they just... When that gets out, that that becomes very disturbing to the public at large when they think they have a serial killer on the loose who's out there killing, not because of something that maybe that person did to them, but just because they're females or children or what have you, and they're just out there. And uh, that that really uh, can kind of turn a community upside down. 
of that young Absolutely. jockey. Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you what, Kevin, you, you've given us now uh, two different awesome shows, so I want you to go oh, ahead yeah. and throw out your plugs for, for the books and for anything else you want to throw out there as well. Okay, great. Thanks. Well, anyway, uh, my new book on Bundy is uh, The Trail of Ted Bundy, Digging Up, Up the Untold Stories. There's a lot of new information uh, in there uh, from Bundy's friends, especially in Utah. There's testimony, again, from the case file. Uh, there's uh, testimony from uh, an interviews of of those who knew Bundy uh, and who knew the victims and uh, those who dealt with Bundy in in the judicial system. So all of that's in there. I consider it a good companion volume to to the Bundy murders. And if the audience members haven't ever read uh, any of my books, uh, then they might want to pick up a copy of the Bundy murders if they're interested in the Ted Bundy case because that's very in-depth. And I also... uh, I've got four publishers, but I'm writing exclusively right now for Wild Blue Press. And uh, I'm, I'm happy there. It's a great publishing house, great writers. I'm just, it's a great place to be published. Uh, and uh, you, I write blogs, crime blogs. All my blogs are archived there. And if you go to my page at Wild Blue Press, you can get there, wildbluepress.com. You hit authors, and my name will be there. And you, and all those uh, crime blogs are archived. And, and Wild Blue Press is nice because they also, not only do they publish my books through them and they're there, but even other publishing houses uh, that, that have published other uh, books, other books that I have written, uh, they also post them there at Wild Blue Press, and there will be links to them for the Amazon and so on, you know, so forth. So anyway... That uh, that's with me. I'm currently working on another true crime book. I can't really talk about it now, but I will announce it later. And uh, anyway, that kind of brings me up to date. And uh, if anybody wants to email me, they can. And uh, it's uh, Kevin underscore Sullivan at uh, I'm sorry, Kevin underscore Sullivan thirty one at yahoo.com. Uh, so anyway. And if you email me, I'll, 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 I will answer you back. Or you can contact me through Wild Blue Press and send, send me a note or something, and I will get back to you. There you go. And, you know, highly recommend all of your work to anybody. You know, And you know what? I highly recommend anybody go look up your YouTube videos, all the stuff sure. you've done on different podcasts. And I don't yeah. mind plugging it because you, you do great work wherever you go. So I really appreciate you always taking the time. Well, I appreciate it, guys. I really do. And anytime you'd like to have me on, just let me know, and I'll come on, and uh, and we'll just have another good time. How's that sound? <laughs> Absolutely. Keep us keep us uh, posted on the progress of this now unnamed book you're working on, okay? I, I will. All right, guys. We'll see you later, okay? Take care, bud. All right. You too. Bye-bye. And everyone, that was... Our second edition with Kevin M. Sullivan talking Bundy. Um, and, you know, when we talk to him again at some point down the road, I'm sure Bundy will come up because he can't get away from it. And well, neither can we. Uh, Vic, I understand you are here, sir. How are you? What is up, man? I'm good. I'm good. You didn't think we'd get two shows out of Bundy, but we did. Yeah, I'm excited about it because, I mean... When you look at it, Bundy is the god of serial killers, and we paid his uh, proper homage. Absolutely. And you know what? Bundy's so interesting that if I ever found another writer that was even half as interesting as Kevin, I'd do Bundy again in a heartbeat. So 
Definitely excited about that. And, you know, Vic, while while I'm thinking about it, I will let everybody know this is our last week on TalkShoe. We're going back again to uh, Filling the Void Radio Network on Blog Talk Radio starting next Monday. It's going to be a list show. Um, just like our first show on the network whenever we first did it, last, uh, when we first did the uh, uh, Travis and Vic's Drunken Horror Movie, or Horror Adventures on um, uh, uh, on Blog Talk, the first time we did uh, the best summer horror movies, well, this time we're going to be doing a little Friday the 13th theme, seeing as this Friday is Friday the 13th. We're going to be uh, talking about top, uh, top. Uh, you know, we're going to rank the Friday the 13th movies. Uh, we'll we'll both have different opinions on that. We're going to rank the Survivor Girls from the Friday the 13th movies, and if we have time, we'll rank the Jasons, which I think we will. So I, I don't think it's going to be too hard to get three lists out. Um, and it'll be fresh in our mind, too, considering Friday, of course, is Friday the 13th. And Vic will be coming over here for as much of a marathon as we can get in that day. Yes, sir. I'm looking forward to watching whatever we can and then doing uh, doing some lists. And I'm sure we can get, you know, maybe a, a Jerry or a Blake or even a Connie to jump in and, you know, share their uh, thoughts and lists. The more the merrier, Brittany Wonder, whoever. Yeah, I mean, we're back on Blog Talk. It's easy for everybody to get on. It's easy for people to listen to. So I'm excited about the move back. Yeah, me too. I mean, for sure. I mean, don't get me wrong. We bitched about... Yeah, it seems like it has been lately. You know, Blog Talk had its issues, but if we have any issues, you know, we can jump right back on Talk Shoot the night of. So, you know... Exactly. It is what it is. (laughs) It doesn't take me long to create a show and get going, so it's not a big deal. Um, so I'm excited about it, talking Friday the 13th again. Because, uh, you know, kind of like Bundy's your favorite serial killer subject, Friday the 13th movies are my favorite you know, movie subject. And Vic, you know, since we'll go ahead and get into uh, where our horror adventures have taken us, I watched uh, a new one for me. I, I think it was a new one. I watched uh, The House on Sorority Row from, I believe it was 1983. The other night? Yeah, and, yeah, how'd that go? <laughs> uh, it wasn't as good as I hoped it would be, because it seems like that one is like a, a... You know how we talked about Cujo being a classic, even though maybe it doesn't live up to being a classic? I thought, mm-hmm. I've always felt like House on Sorority Row, even though it's more of a, you know, a sleazy classic, is, is up there on... Because doesn't it sound like one that people bring up a lot, like I Spit on Your Grave? It's kind of along the line of like a... Return to Horror High, like, it's brought up in, like, that type of, uh... Sort of, uh, yeah. Cold that, class. Yeah, that type, yeah. Definitely yeah, cold it, class. It was all right. It was all right. It wasn't anything special. I'll take my Italian horror movies that I've been watching lately over it. I, I, it's really close between two and a half or three. I'm not sure where to go there. Uh, so, um, now I'm going to go two and a half. I don't remember anything too memorable about the movie. So, I'll go two and a half, maybe a high two and a half. Uh, and then this morning, or, or you know, now that I'm working at home, I actually popped in uh, Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon, which I've seen before. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. And I'm that. friends with Leslie Vernon on Facebook, so we need to get him on here at some point. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because he was the shit in that movie, I just have to say. That movie's still four out of four for me. I love Behind the Mask, Rise of Leslie Vernon. Could it have been more violent? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Could it have been more gratuitous? Yes. But was it awesome and entertaining? Absolutely. Oh, that movie's great. I don't care what anybody says. 
I love the way they establish the rules and even, you know, coin phrases and stuff that maybe were tossed around before that. But, I mean, they actually talk about Survivor Girls and stuff like that. And yeah. how they have an Ahab who's played by Robert England, And Kane Hodder has a cameo. And you got the little little uh, Zelda Rubenstein from Poltergeist in it. I mean, that movie's awesome. Yeah, like, yeah, everything about it was just fun. I think tomorrow I might watch None. it. Because I had Shudder on is what I had going on, see. I had Shudder on because oh, I got another free trial. This is my third free trial. <laughs> That's what happens when you have 50 Facebook oh, uh, accounts. So anyway, yep. uh, tomorrow I'll probably turn on um, Laid to Rest 2 because I love me some uh, Chrome Skull. Uh, he is one of the most unappreciated uh, serial killers in, in cinema history as far as I'm concerned. Right up there with uh, Maniac. Hey, Chrome Skull is in my top 13 flashes, buddy. Or he has one of the coolest masks, too. He, Chrome Skull is the he shit. Is. And his knife was off. Like everything. Yeah. His movie wasn't that good. His movie wasn't that good. The plot was. It was okay. The plot was stupid, but he had some of the best kills you'll ever see in a movie. Yeah, he is. He had great kills, great mask, awesome weapons. It's just, yeah, the plot just sucked. Yeah, the plot just wasn't that good. But when the kills are that good, it, it boosts the movie up. See, that was my issue yeah, with um, like, the, the House on Sorority Rovic is that it was. Um, the plot was all right, but the kills weren't good enough to boost it up that much. You know, you'd think for an 80s movie they would have done a little bit better, but they didn't. Yeah. So that bummed me out a little bit. Uh, I talked about the Driller Killer, man. The Driller Killer? Okay. I, I saw yeah. that on there. Yeah, I'll yeah, check yeah. that out. But it's from the 70s, That's so I'm thinking how good could it be? Hey, that's some good movies from the seventies. Like that's true. Three Most of them are Italian. Three on the Meat Hook was from the seventies, sir. Yeah, but that movie's not very good. Yeah. No. With respect, with respect to the director, who was the man, just because he did movies that were bizarre. And he was from Louisville. I mean, there were some good seventies movies, but most of them are well known, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, a Jaws, yeah. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, a Halloween. But if it's not well known, I don't really have a whole lot of faith in it. But we'll see. There's some other Italian movies I haven't F-E-F-E-F. watched yet, and I love the, sh- yep, I love the shit out of some Italian movies. I'm telling you now, man, because they don't care. They'll do anything. That's the wrong. Yeah, your phone's breaking up. Are you in a dead zone? Oh yeah. I mean, and I called the podcast like ten times. Yeah, I saw that. I saw you were hanging up and calling back. So what we'll do is we'll go ahead and wrap up for this week um, without a uh, what's grinding my gears. We'll save it for next week, and then hopefully uh, you'll be in a place where you can talk a little more. But uh, let's do that, and uh, you know we'll be back on Blog Talk next week. Okay. And by the way, I just want to let you know, you know what my wife's new uh, hobby is, Vic? What's that? She has a police scanner app. Oh, God. So she listens to that all the time, and she—I think it's just—I don't know—it's entertaining. I'll tell you that much. I listen Especially to this city. I listened to it the night of the level purge. Yeah, me too. That shit was funny <laughs> as hell. It, it was. It was great. 
Yep. So anyway, all right. So you can find us on Facebook, Travis and Vic's Drunken Horror Adventures. You can find us uh, our website, travandvichorror.wordpress.com. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at travandvichorror on Instagram, which we rarely use, if ever, uh, at Travis and Vic Horror, I believe. Uh, you can still find our episodes on Talk Show at Travis and Vic Horror, uh, or just look up any of the uh, the titles of it. I mean, nobody else did any Ted Bundy episodes on Talk Show. Let me tell you that now. Or Dahmer, yeah. or or Probably Fish, not. or any of these. Probably I searched not. for them, and we're the only ones that come up. So I mean, we've got everybody else on Talk Show beat with their boring ass podcasts. So anyway. That being said, we are going to sign off for tonight. If you want to hit me up, you can do so at Phenomenal PLD. You can hit up Vic at Vic Von Eric. And, uh, yeah, we'll be back next week on Blog Talk Radio talking some Friday the 13th. Enjoy your Friday the 13th holiday, everybody. I will be off that day. And, uh, yeah, we'll be back next Monday on a, uh, a better a better platform, I hope. So we'll talk to you then. Later on, buddy. All right. Yeah, have a good one. Later, buddy. Later. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.